0: It's Quarter Mile's Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time.
1: Life is a mental.
0: Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? i like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I traveled to over 90 countries. And while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over and quarter miles travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Hello and welcome to quarter Miles Travel, a podcast where we share the stories behind the U.S. Mint State Quarter designs. I'm Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Hornson. Today we're continuing a story from last week's episode on the Louisiana State Quarter. In addition to a pelican and a trumpet with music notes, the Louisiana Quarter also shows the outline of the Louisiana Territory as purchased by the United States in 1803.
2: As we discussed last week, the significance of the Louisiana Purchase goes beyond Louisiana becoming a state. It also represents what the Louisiana Territory was before Americans occupied it. A combination of Native Americans, French and Spanish colonists, and free and enslaved West Africans helped form a cultural identity that continues to define Louisiana today, Creole.
0: And what's so unique about this, Olivia, is that looking at Lara Plantation, you see how that plantation functioned prior to the Louisiana Purchase, as well as how it how it functioned afterwards as well. Such an interesting story.
2: Yeah, there is a lot of family drama, as well uncovered, that kind of coincides with the Louisiana Purchase and the aftermath of kind of the forced assimilation.
0: Mm-hmm. Really, it's, it's a little bit like a typical family story, but then not like a typical right. family story. <laughs> Even after the Creole people were assimilated into American culture, as you just mentioned, Olivia, they were taught English in school and separated from many of their community members. Their traditions and their customs prevail. Nonetheless, the Creole identity is so complex that it is rather difficult to find a starting point. Luckily the team behind Laura Plantation have been able to trace documents, journals, and photographs that help paint a more comprehensive picture of Louisiana's Creole roots.
2: Considered Louisiana's Creole heritage site, Laura Plantation is at the forefront of providing personal stories from the enslaved people who lived and worked on sugar plantations in Louisiana. After providing a thorough explanation of Creole identity in Episode 1, Joseph Dunn began to tell us the story of one particular Creole family in Vacherie. The Duparc family sugar plantation is now known as Laura Plantation, an historical site where you can study the artifacts and the individual stories of enslaved people and tour the expansive plantation grounds. Dive right back into the tour as Joseph tells us about the distinct architecture of the Duparc plantation home and the middle son of the second Duparc generation, Flaget.
1: One of the very first things that you probably noticed as we walked up to begin the tour is that this house does not fit into what most people imagine a plantation house is supposed to look like. And that, again, is because we are not in the American South right here. Um, Greek Revival or Neoclassical architecture, those big white houses with the giant columns, did not arrive in Louisiana as an architectural style or trend until the 1820s. Remember that Louisiana was founded as a French colony in 1699. So up until the early decades of the 19th century, this is the kind of house that you would have found here along this river in various sizes, obviously. Um, And they were not built to be ostentatious displays of wealth. They were built to be functional farmhouses for the sugar cane season. So that explains the architectural difference. And so if you imagine even what we might have seen in our own lifetime, lifetimes, yes. So you have Victorian architecture, then that moves into craftsman architecture, which moves into ranch style, which moved into McMansions, right? This is just a progression of of architecture. Um, Downstairs, we met Laura's grandmother, Elizabeth. We just met Louis Duparc, but right here above the mantelpiece is Flagy. Remember that Flagy is the second son, and we imagine him having a bit of middle child complex, because Flagy did not get to go to France to do his studies there. We do know that he had the very best education that money can buy because we found the receipts for his violin and his dancing lessons he had to be able to navigate in this Upper crust Creole society. He was investing heavily in real estate in New Orleans, not only in the French Quarter, but also in the American sector on the Upper side of Canal Street. He was lending money to people at very high interest rates. And when he died during the Civil War, his house in the French Quarter was sequestered by dozens of officers of the Union Army. Inside, they found an armoire that was filled with gold and silver. So when Flaji died, you can imagine that sparked a civil war in the midst of the family. For the next 20 years, they're going to constantly fight and sue each other, trying to control the fortune. But Flaji had done like most men of his time period. He waited until his early 30s to marry a much younger cousin. A cousin, again, because we're in a feudal and aristocratic society. Remember the map downstairs? All those people know each other. They're related. They marry in the same groups, in the same families, to always reconsolidate these family business networks and the land and the money. And the cousin's name is Mercilite Cortez, and she's right over there above the the sofa. But Flagy and Mercilite have no children. That does not mean, though, that Flagy does not have descendants. But we'll have to wait to meet them in the slave cabins.
0: Elizabeth's son, Emil, and her daughter, Ami, were born in the 1820s. After nearly 40 years overseeing the family plantation, Elizabeth began to worry that neither of her children would successfully carry on the DuPont legacy. Here, Joseph details how mm-hmm. Emil and Ami differ from their mother, and finally, we reach the plantation's namesake, Elizabeth's granddaughter, Laura.
1: We've now arrived at the third generation of the family. You remember that Elisa has died from the overdose of arsenic trying to cure the pimples. Flagy has no legitimate descendants. So now, the only two people left who can carry this family company into the future are going to be Elizabeth's two children. This is Laura's grandmother, Elizabeth, the last portrait we have of her. Her younger daughter, Emma, is going to marry a French aristocrat, and she's going to spend most of her time... In Paris. That's where her children are born. That's where her descendants still live. Her great-grandson came to visit with us for the first time back in September of 2015 and we're now in regular contact with him um, to put together that side of the story. The older child is Laura's father Emil. So Let me retrace here. There's Guillaume and Nanette up there. Elizabeth, Emil, and Laura's not born yet. Emil is not his mother's favorite. Elizabeth calls him a sensitive boy, and she also calls him un gâcheur de nègres, a negro spoiler. Elizabeth thinks her son is much too liberal in his treatment of the slaves. He will never make an effective plantation manager. She is convinced that he will ruin the family. And so to make a man of her son, Elizabeth sends him off to France to military academy. So Emile is 13 years old when he gets off the boat in France in the late 1830s. But France has changed radically in the 50 years since his grandfather, Guillaume Duparc, who met downstairs, left to come to the New World. Emile's going to stay there, in France, for almost 20 years. And these are the most formative years of his life, his teens, his early 20s, and he's completely immersed in all these new and revolutionary French ideas of human rights and liberty, equality, and fraternity. And so when Emile comes back to Louisiana shortly before the Civil War, he's no longer in the mindset of owning a plantation and other human being. <coughs> Emile has become a liberal, republican mm-hmm. Frenchman. So you can imagine there's a bit of a personality conflict, explosion, between the ancien régime mother and the young liberal son. While Emile is in France... Emma and her husband and kids have come back to Louisiana. And these two women are certain that Emile will stay in France. He'll never marry. He'll never have children. So that means they can liquidate everything here and go back to Europe. That's always been the plan. Mm -hmm. The first thing Emile does when he comes back is to marry his cousin. Her name is Désirée Archinard. Laura is born in this room on Christmas Eve in 1861. 1861. The Civil War has just begun, and now there's no chance to sell anything in Louisiana and go back to Europe. Everybody's trapped in Louisiana. Laura realizes early in her childhood that she's been born into a matriarchal family and a matriarchal society. Remember, I told you the men marry in their 30s with much younger women. The children arrive, but then the men die... In their 40s, their early 50s, they leave behind young widows, young children. And these Creole women always step up. And they modernize themselves to rear the children and to save the family companies. Laura was also born at a very critical time in the history of this country, December of 1861. But in April of 1862, the Northern Union Navy sailed up the Mississippi River, occupied the city of New Orleans, and the entire river region. But the Union Army was American, and the troops spoke English. The military occupation lasted here for 17 years. So that means that Laura grew up in occupied Louisiana with Americanization in the English language everywhere. And she could see that the Creole and the French world of her family was beginning to disappear. Laura was like all women of her generation. She wrote very long letters, and she kept enormous scrapbooks. Laura writes the story of her great-grandfather coming from France to fight in the American Revolution alongside George Washington. The last thing that she pasted into a scrapbook was a photograph from Time magazine, and in that picture are astronauts training to go into outer space. Laura was born in this room in 1861. She died in St. Louis in 1963. Think about this. When Laura was born, Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States, and when Laura died, John F. Kennedy lived in the White House.
2: When Creole people in Louisiana were confronted with English-speaking Americans, they saw them as true foreigners rather than their new fellow countrymen. Many attempted to rebel against the American assimilation, but newer generations became more inclined to adopt the American identity, as evidenced by Laura. Joseph tells us how Laura's personal journals, which were written in English and not French, demonstrated her goals of becoming American. He also introduces another character in the DuParc family story, a formerly enslaved woman named Anna.
1: Here above the mantelpiece are photographs of Laura from throughout her life. Right here, we have her as just a little baby. The first photograph we have of her, she's about three months old. This is the day that she was christened in the Catholic Church. Over there on that side, Laura celebrating her 100th birthday with the Cardinal Archbishop of St. Louis. In the middle, a colorized photograph that dates from 1883. We see that Laura is dressed for a party. It's not just any invitation that she has received. Laura is going to the Mardi Gras Ball that is hosted by the mayor of New Orleans. So we know that she's in the very top of Creole society. You notice, if you look closely, that Laura is dressed as Mephistopheles. She's the devil. She's got horns on her head, and she's carrying a pitchfork. Laura liked to push the envelope a little bit. One of her childhood (laughs) friends nicknamed her La Petite Rebelle, the little rebel. We can certainly see that in that picture. Laura had everything going for her here in Louisiana. She was wealthy, born into this exclusive Creole society. By the standards of the time period, she was considered pretty. She even writes in her own memoirs that all the boys wanted to marry her. Why would she want to give that up and go to St. Louis to become an American? We have to remember, Laura was born and she grew up here in this house with the constant family squabble, the legal suits over Uncle Flaggy's money. And she also writes a couple of anecdotes that give us other ideas about why she might have wanted to leave. And one day when she was just about this age, her mother, Desiree, was rocking her right here in this room, and Desiree began to hear screams from the backyard. With Laura in her arms, she ran to the back gallery. In the garden, she found her mother-in-law, Elizabeth, counting money. Elizabeth was talking with a man on a horse. Standing just next to her, screaming and crying, was a young woman named Anna. Anna was clutching her little boy tightly to her chest. Desiree ran into the house and she yelled at Emile, your mother is selling Anna away from her baby. What would you do if someone came here to take Laura away from me? And Emile tried to stop the transaction. His mother told him, this is none of your business. These are my Negroes and I'll do as I please. And she came back into the house to count her money. On the spot, Emile bought Anna back to keep her with her child. And to protect her, she was integrated into Emile and Desiree's household to be Laura's nurse. She was one of the first... American slaves brought into this house. And this all happened early in 1862. Now, the Civil War had just arrived in Louisiana. Now You recall that Emile had been to the military academy in France, so he thought it was his duty to go off and defend his homeland against the invading Americans. Here's a plot twist for you. These Creole families on this river considered themselves to be French, and during the Civil War, they were being invaded by Americans. This family reclaimed French nationality at the beginning of the Civil War to protect their assets and sued the U.S. government for reparations at the end of the war. Emile was gone for four years. In the meanwhile, Desiree escaped to central Louisiana with baby Laura and Anna the Slave. When the war was over, everybody came back here. Anna was free. She stayed as Laura's nurse and later as Laura's maid. And when Laura was married in New Orleans in 1891, 30 years after the beginning of the Civil War, Anna, the ex-slave, is listed among the family members present at Laura's wedding.
0: Laura did eventually get her wish to become American and leave the family plantation behind. And it wasn't until she had children of her own that she set out to write detailed memoirs of her time at the plantation. These writings provided valuable source material for what life was like within the plantation home. But as Joseph points out, that's only half of the story.
2: Laura
1: was 14 years old when she told her parents here in this dining room that she wanted to be like all the other girls her age. She wanted to go to school full-time in the city. She wanted to speak English. And she wanted to learn to live as a modern and liberated American. Now Laura's father, she writes, put his head on the table and he cried. He had always counted on her to be the next generation of the family to run the farm, to continue the tradition of, of planting. Laura wanted nothing to do with it. She spent five years in the city studying. She was only 19 when her father died, and she felt obligated to come back here to help her mother and her younger brother with the business. She did it despite herself for about 10 years. Laura traveled quite often, and on one of her journeys, she met a man from St. Louis, an American, a Protestant, whose name was Charles Gore. They married in 1891, and a year later, Laura had sold everything that she owned in Louisiana. She spent the rest of her life in St. Louis, and there she reared her children as Americans. She completely abandoned the Creole way of life and the French language. It was there in St. Louis in the 1930s that Laura's daughters had heard about a very popular novel, and they were certain that their mama's life here must have been just like Scarlett Mm O'Hara's. So we can imagine Laura saying to her children, my life in Louisiana had nothing to do with Gone with the Wind, and she began to write. We were finally able, several years ago, to publish Laura's memoirs. We do have those available in the gift shop at the end of the tour. But when we read what Laura put on paper for her children, there is nothing in there that talks about mint juleps or hoop skirts or the (laughs) wonderful and glorious and romantical life in the Old South. But it was real life here in this Creole house more than a century ago. And I specifically say in this Creole house because we have two contrasting stories to tell here. There's a story of what happened here in this house, and there's also the story of what happened out there. So come and follow me now into the pantry, and we'll begin to make our way more into the world of the Afriam.
2: Now let's travel with Joseph to the pantry. Not only was it maintained by enslaved people, but it was also masterfully constructed by those who were forced to work in the field. They used Senegalese and Gambian techniques and indigenous resources to construct the pantry, much like they built other structures on the property. Joseph explains how the pantry served as a connection point for domestic enslaved people and the enslaved people working outside.
1: Now this is the pantry. Kitchens were always going to be separate buildings far removed from the big house because of the risk of fire, the heat, and the smells. We had an electrical fire here back in 2004, and we decided in the restoration to leave the walls in this room exposed because you can see the interior architecture of this house. Um, this is what in Louisiana architectural terms is called bricks between posts. It's pretty self-evident. In French, that's called colombage. In German, it's called Fachwerk. Fachwerk. it's a great word. Um, <laughs> anyway, so what you have... In these walls is another great metaphor for Louisiana Creole culture because you have all the elements here. You've got indigenous materials. You've got cypress from the swamps. You see those marks? Those marks on that wood are from enslaved people making these posts. All of these bricks were made by enslaved people from clay that was dug out of the riverbank and they were fired here on site. All this put in place. You see over here on this back wall these two different layers of plaster. This plaster was made in the very same way that people make plaster in Senegal. They take limestone, basically it's going to be oyster shells or something like that, and they're going to grind them up into very fine powder. They mix that with the very fine silt and sand from the river, mix it with water, the first layer goes on, it sticks, they score it with those X's. They lay over that horse hair, deer hair, something like that, some kind of adhesive, and then they'll put the second layer on top, which is then whitewashed, right? So this is a pantry. This is where the dishes, the linens for the dining room stay. This is where all the, um, uh, the valuable foodstuffs are kept under lock and key, but this is also the room where the domestic slaves are going to spend most of their time when they are not busy elsewhere in the house. So every morning, Nanette meets here together in this room with Nina and Henriette. She gives them their directives for the day. They plan meals. They plan events. She hears from Nina and Henriette everything that's happening in this house and around this house. They are her eyes and her ears for everything going on around here. This room is the central nervous system for the operation of this household, for the operation of this farm. And that same scene repeats itself every day in this room, through four generations after the Civil War, up until the time that Laura decides to sell and leave this place in 1892. This is also a transitional space, because this pantry is what separates the inside world from the Creole house slaves, from the outside world of the corporate slaves, who again, are mostly American.
0: And in that area too, Olivia, you can see some of the... Prints and some of the details that are still there from when they actually built that pantry. It's actually very interesting to touch that and know that you're touching history.
2: And I see much of it was built by hand, so that is really fascinating.
0: Very fascinating. Kind of gave you a little bit of a chill to actually touch that, yeah. knowing that you were touching what the enslaved people actually carved out and used in their way of building it. Now in this next segment, Joseph describes the daily activities and the cluster of buildings on the plantation grounds. It was during a routine day that a young Laura encountered one of the freedmen who worked at the plantation. This interaction became a turning point for Laura and fueled her desire to leave the family farm as soon as possible. It's a very stark reminder that the end of the Civil War did not mean formerly enslaved people regretted a happy ending.
1: Looking out behind us today, we see this expanse of property and lots of outbuildings, including stables and sheds. Um, There is a brick foundation immediately behind us with a little panel in front, and that is where the original kitchen sat. It was a two-story building. So those two little buildings you see there now are not the kitchens. They're actually early 20th century tool shed. Um, Historically, everything you see behind us would have been an anthill, a beehive of activity. Because not only were there nearly 200 enslaved people here, you also had the family members, you also had the um, hired um, uh, people who were working here, and the animals, chickens, horses, mules. It was very loud and very busy 24 hours a day. But looking just behind us, we well, see there's a palm tree and there's a well just behind the palm tree. Laura was playing back there at that well one day after the end of the Civil War and she saw come walking slowly toward her an old man who was called Pa Philippe. Philippe had spent most of his life here. And despite his French first name, he was American. He had been brought here from Virginia. It's a very young man and before the war he had worked in the fields, but now his new job was to water the mules. When he saw Laura, he politely lifted his hat to say hello, and Laura saw something on his face that she had never seen before, so she asked him very innocently what it was. But Laura was not prepared for Philippe's response. As a young man, he had tried several times to run away to escape to freedom. Each time, Nanette put ads in the newspaper, sent men with guns and bloodhounds to track him down. They found him in the swamps, brought him back here in chains, and tied him to the ground. They branded him on the face, on the cheeks, the plantation's initials. Laura had seen the livestock branded several days before, and she knew exactly what that meant. And she ran into the house, and she begged her mother to tell her it wasn't true. She was seven years old, when for the very first time, her mother had to try to explain to her the reality of life on this farm. Laura never forgot that day. Many years later, as an old lady in St. Louis, she included the story of Paffy Leap in her memoirs for her children. And she also wrote, word for word... The Civil War came, and the Civil War left, but on the plantation, everything returned to normal. That means, simply, that what we see in movies, what we read in most history books, is a little bit romanticized, because we know here from primary source documents that the majority of the freed slaves stayed on these farms after the Civil War. Like Philippe, they had nowhere else to go. Many of them here... They spoke Creole, and they were Catholic. They could not go anywhere else to start a new life. For those who state, they're now working under contracts that are administered by the Freedmen's Bureau of the U.S. government. They have to be paid, never in cash. Once a year, they get a piece of paper. On it is written letters and numbers, and they can understand nothing. It basically says that what they've earned during the year, they owe back to the plantation store. So their paycheck is an invoice.
2: The tour of Laura Plantation also provides more information on how Creole identity impacted how enslaved people were valued. It was just one of many traits such as age, race, and country of origin that were considered. Many times, at least in Louisiana, enslaved people who had a Creole background were chosen for domestic roles. Joseph also takes us back to the second generation of DuParks and the middle sibling, Flaget. As we mentioned, he and his wife never had children, but the plantation has now been able to determine that Flaget did father children on the plantation.
1: When the property owner died, a complete inventory of that person's possessions had to be made. Slaves were considered a movable property. And so they were part of that inventory as well. The very first one from here dates from 1808 when Laura's great-grandfather, Guillaume Duparc, died. Right back here on this wall in the very middle is a facsimile of the first page of that French-language document in which we find the first names of 17 men, women, and children. And these people are categorized by first name, by age, by origin, by work skill, and also by value. I'll talk to you about a few of them. At the very top, there's a man named Jean-Pierre. He's 25 years old, and he is described as a Creole mulatto. He's half African and half European, and Creole simply means he's born in Louisiana, he speaks Creole, he's fully acculturated. He's not from somewhere else. He's from here. Jean-Pierre works in the fields. He's highly skilled and doing conversions on values. In today's money, he would be worth $100,000. At the very bottom is a little girl named Rose. She's 13 years old, and she is described as une griffe créole. That means she's half Native American and half African, a value today of $45,000. Going back up toward the middle, Angelique is 20 years old. She is described as une negresse, a negresse. So she's black. She's fully black. But she comes from Congo, from Congo. From Africa, So she's not Creole. She's African. She was brought here directly from the continent. Angelique, though, runs away. And she's a very bad housemaid. And despite those negative qualities, she'd still be worth $26,000. And that is because she's only 20 years old. She can still have plenty of children. Today, we are very far removed from the context of the business of the slave trade. And so we might imagine that Europeans went to Africa and they arbitrarily rounded people up to send them to the new world as slaves. It didn't work like that at all. It was a highly developed and extremely profitable business model. And we can see some clues as to how that worked in these French language documents from Louisiana until around the 1820s or so that we usually don't find in English language documents from the American South, because here in Louisiana, we're usually going to have the origins of the Africans, and that tells us all kinds of things about how this worked. Besides the creoles in this document who were born in Louisiana, there are five different African groups. Kanga, Congo, Minon, Moko, Kesi. These were all agricultural people in Africa during this time period. They all knew about sugarcane. So each of them was specifically sought out, captured, bought, sold for an agricultural skill. Because if you were going to the slave market, you were not going to buy a body. You were going to buy a skill. Right? Um, it's also interesting to look at these documents because it gives us also an idea about how these owners needed, and wanted, it was in their best interest to have a diverse population of enslaved people because that guaranteed them control over them. There are internal rivalries among those people. They come from different regions. They speak different languages. They have different belief backgrounds. They eat different kinds of foods. They're easier to control. It's the old principle of dividing to conquer. And that's not something that I really grasped until one day I was doing a tour in French for a group of diplomats, and they were from 10 countries in West Africa. And On the front gallery of the house, the lady from Guinea turned to me and asked this question. She said, Joseph, what color were the slaves on this plantation? So in my North American mind, I responded, they were black. They were brought from Africa. And she said, no, I'd really like to know what color they were. What did they look like? look at us. And she had her colleagues describe for me all of their different ethnic features, how tall and how short they were, texture of their hair, the tints of their skin, their facial features. And for the very first time, I saw standing right in front of me a small sample of the ethnic diversity of the African continent. And this historic document at that moment took on a very different and new sense and meaning. In the big house i told you that laura's great-uncle Flagey had no children with his wife But we're now able to document that Flagey fathered at least four children with at least two different creole slave women Flagey's family tree is right back here on the wall in the first case on the left you see that he fathers a son with melanie melanie works in the fields. But in this system, children take their status from their mother. So despite the fact that his father is white and owns this place, that little boy is going to be born enslaved. He is given the first name of his natural uncle, Louis Duparc. After the civil war, because now they can legally do so, he's going to get married with his longtime companion. Her name is Mathilda. But there we notice that Mathilda is the daughter of Henriette, who lives right over there in that house with Nanette. And she's also the granddaughter of Rose and Jean-Pierre, who are right over here in this very first inventory. So you see right there, these people have known each other for several generations already. Matida and Louis Flagille have no children, and they're buried down the road at the Catholic Church. Later, Flagie's is going to father three children with Henriette Jean-Pierre. Notice that she is the granddaughter of Nina, she lives right over there also with Nanette in the Petite Maison. Now, the first child born here is going to be a little girl named Clémence. Well, this means that Clémence becomes the personal property of her natural grandmother, Nanette. And because Clémence is born and grows up over there in that house, she's going to be trained to be a lady's maid. She can cook, she can sew, she can clean. She learns her catechism because Nanette is very Catholic, and she also learns to read and to write. This is not out of the ordinary for female house slaves in this family. Do you think that Nanette knew that Clémence had been fathered by her son, Flagy? Yes. But would Clémence have been considered to be or treated as the granddaughter of the matriarch of this plantation? Absolutely not. What did I say to you on the front porch a few minutes ago? Integration does not mean equality. And right here, with that photograph of Clémence with her name, you can see exactly how this worked. Flagie Duparc was 66 years old when Clémence was born. Her mother, Henriette Jean-Pierre, was barely 14. Mm -hmm. Flasier Duparc was a very rich and extremely powerful man. According to the Louisiana laws of the time period, he could have emancipated every one of these people. He also could have left them up to one-eighth of his personal fortune. His last will and testament dates from just before the Civil War and designates his sister and his two nieces as his only heirs. The irony of this story is that today it is the descendants of the natural children of color of a Flagey du Parc who are the only direct descendants of this family who remain in North America. It was actually some of them who, about two years ago, gave us that middle image of Clément so that we could tell her story. Here a couple of weeks ago, I had seven of her great-grandchildren in one of my tours, and we're now working directly with them to do a family reunion for them here next year.
0: Now, as Joseph leads the tour to the slave cabins, he details the dynamics of families and communities that formed in these cabins over the course of the plantation's operation. Unfortunately, very little information is available on the experiences of enslaved people, especially those who spoke French. But over time, the team at Laura Plantation has uncovered more individual stories from those who were enslaved at the plantation and throughout Louisiana. Here he shares the story of a man named Edward.
1: There are four slave cabins here behind me that date to the 1840s. Historically, you would have found dozens of cabins like this scattered around the property. We're able to document between 1808 and the beginning of the Civil War, no less than 400 individual names of enslaved people who moved through this property. However, the stable population of corporate slaves here was always between 150 and 200 people. That does not count the individual family members who owned slaves in their own right. Um, There was something that happened here. Even before we found Laura's memoirs up in St. Louis, we knew that in the late 19th century a man from up the road named Alcee Forche had spent time here at the neighboring plantations writing down stories in Creole that these Africans were telling to their children. And the main characters in these stories are animals. The two most famous are Compere Lapin and Compere Bouki. Lapin, you know, is the French word for rabbit, but Bouki is actually a Senegalese Wolof word and it means the stupid hyena. The Bouki is the antagonist, chase a rabbit all around, it's kind of the fool in the story, but the rabbit always is going to outsmart the Bouki in the end. Forche publishes 24 of these stories in bilingual format, Creole on one side, English on the other. At the same time, over in Georgia in the American South, a man named Joel Chandler Harris is writing the same kinds of stories in English, but those are called The Tales of Brer Rabbit and Brer Fox. These stories, though, are not from the New World. They were brought here by Senegambian slaves back in the 1720s. And right now, at this very moment, if you sailed across the world and walked into a third-grade classroom in Senegal and you opened a textbook, you would find the school children there learning their grammar and their spelling using these ancient creationist moral stories of the hyena and the rabbit as the basis of their learning. And that textbook was written by the first African president of the modern country of Senegal. His name was Sedar Senghor, and he died just a couple of years ago. These cabins, like I said, were built in the 1840s. These would not have been considered historically significant buildings throughout most of the 20th century. These remain standing today because they were lived in by descendants of slaves and probably even descendants of Flagey du Parc until 1977. We really don't have a way to know how many people would have lived in these cabins, and that's because there was never any fair or equal distribution of housing here. Everything was dependent upon um, the so the the place and the social hierarchy I described to you earlier, also on interpersonal relationships these people might have had with the overseers or with the property owners, and also recall that there are between 150 and 200 people who live back here. It's a village. In this village are all those kinds of relational dynamics you're going to have in any kind of community. So in a house like this, you might imagine a nuclear family, you might imagine a single parent household, you might imagine groups of men or groups of women, but it is dynamic. And so without specific documentation about each of these cabins, we really just don't have a way to know. On the back gallery, I mentioned those contracts put in place after the civil war between the emancipated workers and the property owners. So now we're moving into a new economic system. We're moving from slavery into sharecropping. And so, and the company store system. And so this is the contract that Laura's grandmother, Elizabeth, signed with many of these people. Um, There are 53 names of men here. I would like for you to remember number 10, Edward Groh, and number 20, Philip Groh. Edward and Philip are going to be the main characters in the last story I'm going to tell you over here on the other side. It's almost impossible to reconstruct the entire biography of a person who would have lived in one of these cabins. And that's because these kinds of first-hand accounts simply don't exist, even if during the 1940s there was lots of work done in the American South with elderly people who had been slaves as children. All of that work was done in English, and there was never anything done here in French or in Creole. Every now and again, we get great leads. About two years ago, the Civil War pension records in Washington, D.C. were finally opened to researchers, and there... We have been digging and finding lots of great information, including the story of a man named Édouard. We saw the name Edward on the contract on the other side. It's the very same guy, Édouard, who was born here, enslaved in 1835. His mother was a Creole slave named Mélanie, the very same Mélanie we saw in the barn over there, but Édouard's father is not Flagi-Dupac. His father is American. So as a young boy, Édouard is trained to be a brick mason. But the thumb of his right hand is crushed, and it has to be amputated. Later, he is retrained to be a brick mason, which uh, is retrained to be a sugar maker. He's retrained to be a sugar maker. Puts him at the very top of the skilled slave hierarchy. He marries, he has children. But in 1862, the Civil War arrives in Louisiana with the occupation of the Union Army. One thing you will not learn in school is that Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation did not really free the slaves. It was a political ruse to appease the abolitionists. Because if you read that document word for word, you clearly see that New Orleans and the River Region and all the occupied territory are exempted from emancipation, and that is because the Union Army needed the slaves on the farms to feed the troops, and to keep the economy of the river and the port going. And add to that that many of these people here didn't speak English. Edward somehow, though, was recruited into the Corps d'Afrique. These are the Negro troops of the Union Army, the U.S. Colored Troops, they were called. And he's sent off to fight in the war. He ends up at the Battle of Port Hudson, outside Baton Rouge. Port Hudson is going to be the longest siege of the Civil War, Edward and his comrades are dug into the deep trenches along the river and they're fighting for their lives. The bombardments don't stop for weeks. His eardrums burst. He loses most of his hearing. He's biting cartridges so that he can shoot back. All of his teeth fall out. When the war was over, Edward was free. He walked back here to his wife and to his children, to his job as a sugar maker, to one of these cabins. In 1891, 30 years after the beginning of the Civil War, the very same year that Laura was getting married and preparing to leave Louisiana, Edward learned that he could get a pension as a veteran of the Union Army, but he had to prove that he was there. So imagine just for a moment this old black man who hardly speaks English trying to make his story believable to a military tribunal of white men. The handwritten testimonies are 114 pages in English. He had to speak through an interpreter. The final decision was this. It is impossible that he has invented a word. He knows everything in minute detail. He has no teeth. He's mostly deaf. He hardly speaks English. He is simply a feeble-minded old Negro. Edward got his pension, $12 a month that he collected until he died here in 1906 this photograph was taken in 1888 at the sugar mill which used to sit behind these cabins edward is the third man here from the left we've magnified him on this side so you can see what he looks like better i told you that his mother was a creole slave named melanie edward's father was an american slave named philip grove he's in fact the very same puffy leap i told you about on the back porch who was branded on both cheeks because he tried to run away to escape freedom and here in Laura's memoirs on page 102 is a photograph of Edward's daughter. Her name was Susan. And we can see her standing right there at the top of the back steps that we just came down a few minutes ago. Now, like I told you in the very beginning out there under those trees, what we do here is not about the house, it's not about the dishes, and it's not about the furniture. We've just taken a walk together in the footsteps of so four generations of one Louisiana Creole family. And you've seen that the members of this family are white, black, in between free, enslaved, all in the same family, and they lived here in very complex and complicated contexts and relationships that go way beyond anything that any of us can imagine today, and it's our privilege to bring them back to life for us.
2: so how does this story fit with the theme of Louisiana State Quarter? The Louisiana Territory was valuable to the United States, not only as a mere acquisition of land, but also through the growing industries built on the labor of enslaved people. Laura Plantation provides some of the most in-depth personal accounts and houses high quality photographs and artifacts that help tell the story of the people who built a thriving sugar farm.
0: We learn from Joseph that many enslaved people who were brought to the French colony before the Louisiana Purchase and those who were born there were key contributors to the Creole identity as we know it today. The Native Americans, European settlers, and freed and enslaved West Africans who lived in the Louisiana Territory had formed their own sense of nationality, and it was drastically altered by the events of the Louisiana Purchase. Despite years of forced assimilation, the Creole identity is still closely tied to Louisiana state pride today. Now, Olivia, you know, I really have to just kind of share with you my a little bit of my feelings of visiting there. I had a couple of feelings. I mean, first of all, as an African American, whenever I go to a place where people were enslaved, it's sort of a spiritual journey for me. I like to kind of put myself in the place of seeing if I can can bring up any feelings of what it must have been like for the people who lived there and who were enslaved there and who had to work in those sugarcane fields just just for myself to kind of gain a a more realistic understanding than just what is presented to me because so often a lot of those stories are not available of the people who were enslaved and in so many cases in large plantation does a really good job of not doing this. But in so many places, so much of the focus is on the plantation house, the furniture and the dishes and all of those things. And I'm standing there thinking, well, yeah, but if I lived in that time, I would have been the person who was responsible for cleaning those dishes and making sure the furniture stayed polished. So what was great about Laura Plantation was that you do get a chance to learn about the people and not only the enslaved people, but the whole family because of people who were enslaved did become really part of the whole plantation and the whole family. So that was really a great, sort of a great way to to see it presented at Laura Plantation. But then secondly, something that really stood out to me is I had a chance to see a map of all of the plantations along the Mississippi River. And it was just astonishing to me to see how many they were because I guess I've fallen into the Hollywood thing of Watching the movies and you just assume that the plantations were these big, you know, large plantations with lots of acreage around them. The next plantation is five or six miles down the road. But that wasn't the case on the Mississippi River. They were actually lined up. I like to even say maybe just piled on top of each other uh, along the Mississippi River. So it really shows you how slavery and how the enslaved people were really used to make that particular area of at that time the louisiana territory now and then later part of the united states to really make it into a business operation of producing sugar
2: right that enabled you know french and spanish and other europeans to kind of take part in this get rich quick scheme Mm -hmm. of setting up a plantation in Louisiana and then taking the riches back home.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So you really see how um, you can even say maybe it was exploited to a certain extent too. Um, But it really showed me how I've always known that, of course, slavery was to provide, you know, economic development for others and not the slave people. But you really, really see it there with all of those plantations lining, lining up there. I just wanted to add that part Mm. to it.
2: (laughs) I'm glad you did. It is interesting that a lot of times when we look at plantations, it's almost romanticized Mm. in a way. And so I am glad that there's a place like Laura Plantation where they're dedicated to telling the stories of the enslaved people who lived there. Mm. I mean, that is their mission. Mm. And as Joseph said, it's not about the house. It's not about the land. It's about the people.
0: It's about the people. And on our next episode, we will visit another plantation. We will visit Whitney Plantation, which does do also a very good job of focusing on the enslaved people and some of the activities that took part with them also, too, trying to gain their freedom. Uh, So when we come back in the next episode, we'll pick up again. We're not leaving Louisiana yet. (laughs)
2: <laughs> this is only one part of the
0: Louisiana quarter. Oh, Louisiana is fascinating. So much great history there. And I know when we touch on the music part of it, that would be fascinating as well. But, Quarter Miles Travel, we'd like to definitely thank you all for joining us on these two episodes as we talked about Laura Plantation. And we'd like to extend that appreciation and thanks to the following companies, organizations, and people the New Orleans Plantation Country, Laura Plantation. Top Destination Management, United Front Transportation, and their owner, Dana James, Joe Banner, Kyle Mills, and our very, very special guest and tour guide, we can say, Joseph Dunn. Thank you.